will you open your Bibles with me to the book of Acts, chapter 17. This morning we continue with Paul's second missionary journey with Silas and Timothy. They left Luke behind in Philippi, we believe, so it's just the three of them again. We're going to make our way down to verse 15 today. Last week, we saw Paul and Silas. They travel from Asia. Remember, not the continent of Asia, but the Roman province of Asia, which is modern-day Turkey, to the province of Macedonia. They planted a church in Philippi. They cast a demon out of the local oracle, after which they were beaten. They were thrown into prison without a trial, which was illegal because they were both Roman citizens, but the mob wasn't really concerned with that. The Lord sent an earthquake to free them from the jail. They got to lead their jailer and his whole family to Christ, much to the embarrassment of the local magistrates who, remember, they tried to get them to quietly leave town and just not cause any trouble, but Paul got that public apology uh, before they left, and they did end up leaving the city of Philippi. So today, we're going to follow the team through two other Macedonian cities, Thessalonica and Berea. And as will be the case in nearly every city Paul visits, they're going to be run out of town by an angry mob in both places. And in the end today, Paul is going to be forced to flee Macedonia entirely to the city of Athens. And we'll look at that next week. But this is a great passage because in Thessalonica, the Christians will be accused of turning the world upside down. That's the task that we've been given by Jesus. To reclaim the rightful kingdom of God in his name. But if we're going to try to do that, we need to expect that, like Paul and Silas, there will be vigorous, even violent resistance to the church. People don't like being turned upside down, even if that's exactly what they need. Paul and Barnabas had said back in Acts 14, 22, do you remember? Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. As Christians, we're not interested in maintaining the status quo or the balance of power or any such thing. We are interested only in the truth. People tell themselves all kinds of lies in order to keep the peace. But Paul and Silas were willing to make the sacrifices necessary to pursue the truth. So I hope by the grace of God we can learn from their bravery, from their determination, and that we'd get a little fired up. I want to turn the world upside down. Isn't that a cool thing? That's what I want to see. So let's begin by reading together the first four verses of Acts 17. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ." And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. We'll pause right there for now. So Paul, Silas, and Timothy set out from Philippi and make their journey to Thessalonica. If you've got maps in the back of your Bible that show you Paul's second missionary journey, I want to flip there right now so that we can get a sense of the geography. And if you're watching at home, I suppose you could Google it. It says that they passed through two smaller cities, Amphipolis and Apollonia. So this is a southwest trip. Southwest down from Philippi, down through Amphipolis, down to Apollonia. Then they would turn due west to go to Thessalonica. Now they're moving along what 
was called the Ignatian Way. This is one of those famous Roman roads you might have heard about that began at Neapolis and went all the way across the peninsula to the other side. And all told, this is a journey of about 100 miles. So if they were on horseback, I read this would be a journey of about three days. If they weren't on horseback, it would have been even longer. You'll remember they had also, Paul and Silas had been very severely beaten in the city of Philippi, so they could have been trying to recover from those wounds, and maybe they were moving slower. So it's been a while. And it does not specify why they only passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia. Amphipolis, in particular, was a district capital. It wasn't like the capital of Greece or anything, but it was similar to a state capital as we have today. But they passed right through. And it seems they're looking for two things. Number one, they're looking for a city that has a synagogue. Do you remember in Philippi there was no synagogue? They were meeting down at the riverside for prayer. They're looking for a synagogue. And secondly, they're looking for the most strategic city that could work towards the goal of evangelizing the whole region. They want to evangelize all of Macedonia. So where's the key city? Well, that could only be Thessalonica. Thessalonica was the capital city of the whole province of Macedonia. And it was certainly the largest city in Macedonia. I saw estimates of the population that were ranging from 20,000 to 200,000. So somewhere in there. (laughs) Lots and lots of people. That's a big city today, but especially back then, this was a huge city. It was known as the metropolis of Macedonia. Some people called it the mother of Macedonia. And it was then, and it remains today, the second largest city in Greece. The largest is Athens, and even today, they they call it Thessaloniki, if you want to look that up, and it's the same city. It's built on the same foundations, and it's still a big place because this was a big commercial center. It was a port city. It was a port that opened into the Mediterranean Sea, and it also had two rivers running through it, so that made it a key trade point. If you're trying to go north anywhere, you're going to stop in Thessalonica because it's got the rivers that can take you north up into the Balkan Peninsula. And it's also a key stop on the way to the Dardanelles and the Bosphorus Straits if you're wanting to go up into the Black Sea, even up towards the Ukraine, towards Russia. So there was a lot of traffic going through Thessalonica. And if you're interested, it was named for the half-sister of Alexander the Great. Her name was Thessaly, and you add the word Nike, which is Nike, means victory. So Thessaly's victory. That's where the name of that city comes from, Thessalonica. Now, this was not a colony like Philippi. Do you remember? It was a colony. Being in Philippi, as we said, was Rome away from Rome. You were born in Philippi. You were a Roman citizen. You have all the same rights as a Roman and the same laws applied. This is a free city. It's a little different. It's also a privileged status. They're able to govern themselves so they didn't have to listen to a Roman governor like Israel had to listen to Pontius Pilate, for example. They were allowed to govern themselves, but it was still under Roman supervision, and the people were not citizens, so they did not have access to the same rights that the Romans did. And partly for that reason, Thessalonica retained much more of its Greek culture as the rest of Macedonia was Romanized. And uh, this is, we know from history, that they they were happy to be Romans, but they were more proud of being Greeks rather than being Roman. And it was granted the status of being a free city in 42 BC because the same war that we referenced last week, they were the first city to defect from Brutus and Cassius to support Octavian and Mark Anthony in that war after the assassination of Julius Caesar. 
And so they picked the winning side in that fight, and they were the first ones to do it. So they were given this status as a free city. And why I'm drawing all this stuff out is because I want you to see how different a world it is from Israel, Jerusalem, Judea. You read through the whole Old Testament, even in the Gospels, the first part of Acts, you are in Israel. It is Semitic. There is Middle Eastern culture there. We've left that far behind. We moved up through Antioch and some of those places where there was some blending. You are in a place now where they are proud to be part of the empire of Rome. And back in Israel, they were always having trouble. Everybody was fighting against Rome. Here, they're happy to be part of Rome. It's a point of pride to be part of that empire. And this is where the Lord sends them to plant another New Testament church. There were no books Paul could go look up on how to do this, <laughs> how to minister cross-culturally. He thinks, well, let's just go and preach the gospel. And that was what he did. As was his custom, Paul says, went to the synagogue in Thessalonica. As a visiting rabbi, he had studied under Gamaliel, you remember, he would have been given a chance to speak. And if Paul's going to speak, he's going to speak about Jesus. If you look back in chapter 13, Luke lays out what was probably his typical synagogue message. Like when Paul showed up, this was his first thing. So he doesn't give us his exact words here. We're not going to see the exact text of his message to the synagogues anyway, because we've already been given it. But he uses three words to describe what Paul did here. Do you see these? Number one, he reasoned. Number two, he explained. And number three, he proved. That word for reason is dialegomai. It's where we get our word dialogue. Dialegomai, dialogue. So it means to argue. It means to discuss. That word for explain is dianoigo, which means to open, as in to open one's mind or to encourage somebody to open their mind. And that word for proved is paratithemi, literally means to lay down or to set before. We still talk like that, right? Lay it out for me. That's what Paul's doing. All of this, the reason I'm pointing that out, reasoned, explained, proved, this is the language of proof and persuasion. Paul did not just show up and appeal to the emotions or the sensibilities of these people. He didn't just get them all whipped up and excited and say, now come follow Jesus with me. He spent three weeks demonstrating from the scriptures the truth of what he believed. He would go on to write in 2 Corinthians 5.11, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. The Christian faith is not irrational. It's a reasoned belief based on the faithful exposition of the holy revelation of God. That's why as Christians, we need to have a weird meter. You know what I mean? When someone wants to open up the Bible and come up with something weird, it's like that, that's not how we do this. We reason, we explain, we study. God revealed himself through words. Words mean things. Words in a sentence mean things. Sentences in a paragraph, in a book, have meaning. And people want to complicate that, but we need to know what it says because that's going to tell us what it means. And this is exactly what Paul did. He showed up and he taught the word. Now he's dealing with a group of, of men and women here, Jews for the most part, but these in the synagogue believed in the Old Testament and they believed in the coming of the Messiah. And that's going to affect how he preaches to them. Next week, we're going to see Paul is in Athens and he's speaking to a bunch of pagans. They don't believe the Old Testament. So he's going to have to start way farther back. Let's start with creation, he's going to say. But we'll see that next week. There's a different approach to it. But 
He's talking to people who believe the Old Testament. There's a great foundation. So the goal of his persuasion was to demonstrate them. It gives us three things if you're taking notes. Number one, maybe these were his, his three weeks. Said he taught for three weeks. Maybe this was his little series. Week one, it was necessary for the Christ to suffer. Point number one. Point number two, it was necessary for the Christ to rise from the dead. Point number three, this is where he brings it home. Jesus of Nazareth is that Messiah. Messiah and Christ mean the same word. I'm sure you know that. So Paul is teaching these three things. Let's break them down because they're still true and they're important for us to know. First, he would demonstrate to them from the scriptures that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer. You know your Bible. There are numerous prophecies in the Old Testament about the coming Messiah. And there's so many of them that if you're not looking at it closely, they can start to see contradictory to you. And the Jews had their favorites. We're like that too, don't we? Everybody, you know, whenever someone asks, well, what's your life verse? There's like three or four verses that people are going to choose from. Everybody likes Jeremiah 29, 11. We like John 3, 16. We like Romans 8, 28. We've got our favorites, and that's okay. They had their favorites too. But they did what we're not supposed to do. And they let their favorites become the most important things rather than letting the things that they weren't as comfortable with be factored in as well. They preferred the passages about Messiah coming to destroy their enemies, to reign over the whole world from Jerusalem. Oh, that'll preach. But what Paul was coming to do, he's going to draw out these other prophecies about the Messiah that said he's going to have to suffer and die. Passages like Psalm 22, verses 14 and 15. The whole thing's good, but these two verses. Here's a prophecy about the Messiah. I'm poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. Well, that doesn't sound like a conquering hero on a white horse, does it? And in fact, the rabbis of this day, they were so confused as to how to make these passages work together that they had said, well, maybe there's multiple messiahs. We're going to have a suffering messiah. We're going to have a conquering messiah. We're going to have the son of David. Uh, they were coming up with multiple figures. But Paul is going to come and demonstrate, no, these are all the same person. And the Messiah has to suffer. Before the Messiah can reign, he has to suffer because he's got to make atonement for sins. I imagine Isaiah 53 was a key passage here. There are some synagogues today, Jewish synagogues, that won't even read Isaiah 53 anymore because people might misunderstand it and think that it's talking about Jesus. It says in verse 5 of Isaiah 53, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and by his wounds we are healed. So this is probably what Paul's doing, drawing all these things out. Pointing out, hey, you can't ignore these guys. Messiah has to suffer. And that's what he probably spent his first Sabbath doing. The, the sins of the Jews needed to be paid for. This is also probably his way of bringing to the people an awareness of their sins. The Messiah had to suffer. Secondly, he proved to them from the scriptures it was necessary for the Messiah to rise from the dead. And this is the next logical step, because if the Messiah is to suffer the pangs of death, how is he also going to be the deliverer of Israel? That would have been the immediate question. The Messiah has to suffer. Well, I thought he was supposed to ride in on a white horse, and, and the Mount of Olives would be split in two, and he'd ride in leading a host of captives. Well, yes, 
He's got to rise from the dead. Now, you know this was a divisive issue in Judaism at the time. The Sadducees in particular were vehemently opposed to the resurrection because they thought if people start thinking about the resurrection, they're not going to be focused enough on this life and our political problems right now. Doesn't that sound like a familiar tune you might have heard before? So Paul demonstrates from the Bible that Messiah needed to rise from the dead. And the favorite New Testament passage for this is Psalm 1610, where David wrote, You will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. We've talked before. Sheol is the grave. It's the place where the dead people go, the underworld, you might say. It's saying, you're not going to let me stay down in the dead place. And Peter explained back in chapter 2, David wrote that, but David did die. (laughs) The Holy One of the Lord did see corruption. So what's going on here? He's saying this could only be written about the son of David, the Messiah. And there are many Psalms like that. There's a fun passage for you, or a fun challenge for you, I should say. Read through the Psalms and circle every place where it talks about the son of David being delivered out of death. It's pretty cool. Maybe Paul used the illustration of Jonah like Jesus did. Three days under the earth and then risen again. Although Jesus' resurrection was a little more noble than than Jonah's was, getting vomited on the beach by a giant fish. (laughs) For if the Messiah needed to die to make atonement for sin, he needed also to rise so that he could return and reign and give life to his people. And third, Paul took these truths about the Messiah, the penalty for sin, the promised hope of resurrection, and he connected them to the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus of Nazareth died on the cross. He suffered. He rose from the dead according to the scriptures, and Paul has come to proclaim to them the kingdom of God. It's really interesting because what Paul is teaching here is very similar to what we read in Luke 24, verses 46 through 47. Jesus said, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. And that's exactly what Paul is preaching. Messiah suffered, he rose from the dead, and he can give you life. Repent and believe in the name of Jesus Christ. That would have been their next question. What do we do? Okay, great, Messiah's come. What do we do? He said, repent, be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. And Paul and Silas would have led them to exactly that, to commitment to Jesus. And it says there that some of these Jews were persuaded, but a great many Gentiles were saved. This would be the pattern pretty much everywhere Paul went. It says that they joined the missionary team. And this is interesting because obviously that can mean that they just attached themselves to Paul and Silas and they agreed with them. But if you read in the book of, I believe it's 1 Thessalonians, he said that he labored amidst them with much conflict. So it's possible, and I'm inclined to think, that Paul was booted out of the synagogue at some point. Stop bringing that teaching around here. You're confusing people. So now these folks are not going to the synagogue any longer. They're going to where Paul and Silas are. You can see here the Christians are made to separate from the Jews in the synagogue. And these are the beginnings of the Thessalonian church. Now, we do not know how long Paul stayed in Thessalonica and Silas, you get the impression, though, when you read First and Second Thessalonians, that he felt like he had to leave too soon. He wished he could have stayed longer. We do know from First Thessalonians 2, verse 9, that during this time, Paul and Silas were working to support themselves. Paul would make a big deal out of this in a lot of his, his books. He said, as your pastor, it would be right for me to be supported by you financially, but I would rather work and support myself 
so that I could set a good example for you. And this is what they did. We also know from Philippians 4.16 that while they're in Thessalonica, the church in Philippi sent financial support to Paul and Silas twice. We discussed Lydia and some of those in Philippi. It was more of a wealthy city, a wealthier set that they were ministering to, and they were helping them out. So they were there long enough for that kind of thing to happen. But Paul felt like it wasn't long enough, and that maybe just was because he liked the Thessalonians a lot. And things seemed to be going very well, but it was not to last. Let's read verses 5 through 9 now. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men, who have turned the world upside down, have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. This is a story that we've seen played out a few times already. Certainly not the last time, though, that an angry mob is going to come for Paul. You see, the instigators of the trouble here were the Jews. These were those from the synagogue who had not believed. And they were jealous because they had lost a significant portion of their Gentile proselytes. For a Greek or a Roman, following Judaism was an intellectual step up. You actually can read this in history, aside from Scripture, that there were many Jews, or many, I should say, Romans, who converted to Judaism, or at least would go to the synagogues and read the Scriptures, because these were smart people. And when you hear all the stories about Apollo and Daphne and Jupiter and Saturn, you're like, you've got to be kidding me. <laughs> really? I'm going to believe this? I'm going to worship that? Well, here come the Jews, who are preaching one God, a God of order and rationalism and logic, but also of power and might, and he's got a scripture, and he's got prophecies, and like, okay, this seems more legit. So a lot of them were attracted to that, and this opened up the door for the Christians to come in, because the gospel would blow into town, and all these Gentiles that were in love with Judaism would get converted and start following after Jesus. So the Jews are watching the harvest of Gentiles being reaped without them. This was a judgment upon Israel for the rejection of their Messiah. Jesus made this very clear if you read through the Olivet Discourse in the end of most of the Gospels. He said, I'm going to do what I've always said I was going to do, but I'm going to do it without you. God has decided to accomplish the work he always intended for Israel, which was to redeem all the nations, but to do it without them. And in the end, we know that Jesus is going to come back. He's going to return. He's going to redeem Israel. But in the meantime, Romans 11 tells us that God is working to provoke the Jews to jealousy by his love for the Gentiles. Paul writes in Romans 11, verses 13 and 14, he said, Inasmuch as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order to somehow make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. The Lord is trying to get the attention of his people who rejected the promised one, Jesus. And there's a lot we could dive into about that. But the point is, they're not receiving Jesus, but they are getting pretty mad that the synagogue is getting smaller because these people are starting to follow Christ. 
Paul's like, hey, that's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to provoke some of them to jealousy. But that's a risky business. <laughs> the Jews were not made jealous unto salvation here, but they doubled down on the rejection of Jesus, and they made common cause, it says, with wicked men. That's how you always know that you're in the wrong, when you find yourself making allies with wicked people. Well, it's for a good cause. No, it's not. <laughs> it, it wouldn't be. If it was a good cause, there wouldn't be wicked people supporting that cause. But that phrase there actually is agorion andras. It literally means men of the agora. If you know, an agora was the marketplace. And uh, I found that kind of funny because every town has men of the marketplace, just lazy troublemakers. They hang around on the street corners. They're hanging out in the marketplace looking for trouble. And so the Jews know where they can find these people, and they show up and they say, hey, fellas, we're about to make trouble for some foreigners. Y'all want in on that? Sure. Why are we going after them? Well, they're, uh, they're believing in this other God. Like, ah, we don't care. We get to go knock some people around. That, that'll be fine with us. So they form a mob. They come to the house of a Christian named Jason. We don't read much else about him, but his name is Jason, where Paul and Silas were staying. And it says they attacked the house. And the goal was to bring them out to the crowd. But that word for crowd, it's more significant than just the mob here. This is the word demos in Greek. This was a, a legal term. It was a people's court. In, in Greek city-states, they had this, this people's grand jury, basically, where there were certain cases that you didn't need to bring it to the official authorities, but the people could handle it themselves. And it was called the demos. So this is what they're trying to do. It's a citizen's arrest, really. But Paul and Silas aren't there. The only one there is Jason. Like, well, we came to make trouble, so we're going to make trouble. So they haul Jason away. They take him before the local politarchs, as they were called. Jason had more rights as a native of the city. He couldn't just get hauled before the demos, so they're going to take him before something a little more official. And the accusation, the same one that came against them in Philippi, is that they were disloyal and they were subverting the loyalty and patriotism of the people. So they're stirring up people against Caesar to follow another king, a king named Jesus. You remember, Thessalonica was very proud of its heritage as a free city. We were the first ones to support the emperor. They're not going to put up with traitors and rebels. It's very interesting because back in Israel, back in Antioch, back in Syria, back in Ethiopia, you come in and say, hey, there's a new king named Jesus. And they say things like, well, good, anybody's better than Caesar. But now they're up here in Greece. Like, you're going to tell us to deny Caesar? We're going to put you to death. And the Jews, they twisted the intentions of Paul and Silas. Because are Paul and Silas out there to make a political move? Of course not. They're just trying to accuse them. It's actually very similar to what they said about Jesus. Luke 23, 2, when they're talking to Pontius Pilate, the Jews said, We found this man misleading our nation, forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar, and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. Satan's only got a few tricks, but if they work, he's going to keep on trying them until they don't work anymore. They're saying, well, they're, they're subverting the people. But look at that initial accusation in verse 6. I love this. These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. Turn the world upside down. I love that. The translation of one, one Greek word, anastatao, literally it means to upset or to unsettle or to turn something over, but I liked turned upside down. I like that we kept that, that little flavor in the translation because it accurately captures not only what the church was doing, but how the Gentiles felt about what the church was doing. 
Everything's upside down. They had probably heard about what happened in Philippi. Maybe folks from other parts of the empire had traveled to Thessalonica, and there's rumors about these Christians. Watch out. If the Christians come to town, they're just going to make trouble. Everywhere they go, there's riots. And they were afraid that it threatened their culture. They were afraid that it threatened their way of life. And you know what? They were right. They were absolutely right. Jesus said in Matthew 10, 34, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. What is Jesus saying, that we should go on a crusade? No, he goes on to say, I'm drawing a line in the sand. You either are with me or you're not. And he says it's going to cause trouble. He says it's going to turn a mother against her daughter and a father against his son because you're either with me or you're not. He knew what he was up to. He insisted that we make a decision, and he sent missionaries out to draw the same line in the sand, to draw it between cities and families and civilizations and say it's either Jesus or not. The gospel is disruptive. The Lord wants peace on earth, but he wants peace on the right terms. Christianity brought turmoil to the Roman Empire. It would not be long before emperors would begin to order the execution of Christians because they refused to take a pinch of incense, put it on the altar, and say, Caesar is Lord. That's it. Done and done. It's like filling out paperwork at the DMV. But the Christians wouldn't do it because there's only one Lord and his name is Jesus. And you might hear that and think, that's so silly. It's just, it's, all you're saying is that he's, he's king. You're not have to say he's Lord of your life, but the Christians knew. We're, first of all, we're not going to burn incense to an idol of some guy that lives in Rome. And we're not going to give the name of Lord to anybody other than Jesus Christ. They were stoned for it. They were beheaded for it. They were fed to the lions. They were crucified for it. Some of those emperors got really creative in the way they tried to get confessions out of these Christians. But within a few short centuries, the emperors themselves were Christians. And when Rome fell to the barbarian invaders, it was the church that endured. The church endured longer than the Roman Empire. The church has been around longer than the Roman Empire ever existed. And later, those pagan barbarians that sacked Rome, they became Christians. And they began to send the gospel around the world. The missionary journey of Paul was the part of the greatest revolution history has ever known. The world gets flipped over. It turns things upside down. But we know, though, the Christians weren't really turning the world upside down, were they? They were flipping things right side up. That great ship of humanity, it had capsized in the Garden of Eden. And everything is backwards now. And you know what? People had made it work. The world's upside down, but we're just going to get used to it. And then Jesus shows up and says, hey, guys, your boat's upside down. Yeah, we're making it work, but we've got to flip it over. No, don't flip it over. If you flip it over, everything we built is going to fall apart. He's like, but that's not how a boat is supposed to work. It's supposed to be like this, not like that. Jesus knew what he was doing. He said, I've come to bring light to the world, but the darkness is not going to stand for it. I've not come to bring peace, but a sword. It's even the case in our time, you guys. The gospel is always at work. It stands in defiance and even judgment of the world. And even when a culture submits to the gospel, and it has happened many times over history, it's a wonderful thing. They submit to the gospel, and now the culture and the word are in line. But what happens? The culture continues to change, but the word doesn't change. And then they say, hey, 
You guys need to come over here with us. Like, uh, no, we're not changing. And then they get angry, and they become persecutors again, even though they were in submission before. And, you know, I'm afraid that we have been taking some steps down that long road in our own culture because you've seen it. We're accustomed to being in line with the Word of God. We're used to it. And so we have begun to assume that we're always going to be there. But then what happens? Culture moves. The gospel doesn't move. People say, hey, get over here. It's like, "Uh, absolutely not. We're standing right here. And people don't like that. But our point of conflict is different than Paul and Silas, though. Theirs was an issue of of loyalty and the glory of Rome. You've seen all those old movies, right? The glory of Rome. Our country's a little different. We were founded on principles of freedom, haven't we? Let freedom ring, we sing. We've made liberty and freedom the highest virtues. But you can see how that could lead to a bad direction. We've let liberty run wild. And we've reached a point, we've always really been there, but it's, it's more stark, at least in our lifetime, that we've got to part company with some of our countrymen on this stuff. Galatians 5.13 says, Do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. 1 Peter 2.16, Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. The United States of America does not acknowledge those same caveats. Bible says, yes, you are free, but don't use that freedom as an excuse to do bad things. We believe in freedom, but the righteousness and the fear of God have to come first. Without those safeguards, you leave liberty behind, and you become what the Bible calls licentious. It comes from the same word for license. Like, I just have permission to do whatever I want. That's what freedom means. Not according to the scriptures. And I think the best example of this of freedom run wild, run far beyond its boundaries, is the issue of abortion. Because you have to look at how this started. You had the sexual liberation movement. We want freedom from moral restraint. We want freedom from marital restraint. We want to be able to have sex with whoever we want, whenever we want. So what do you get? You get easy divorce. You get hookup culture. And that's the way things go. Yay, freedom. Well, now you've got a bunch of children being born. What are we going to do with all these children? Children are not exactly liberating things, are they? Children put a weight of responsibility on your shoulders. And if we are holding up freedom as the highest virtue, well, we cannot abide any kind of restriction on our so-called freedom. So what are we going to do? We began to kill our unborn children so that we could stay free to pursue our own ends. And it's gone even beyond that. Why should my sex or my gender limit my liberty? Who are you to say? Because I'm free. You even see this, that even those who are with us on a lot of issues, you bring this up and they go, well, I mean, who are we to say it's really all about liberty and freedom? It's not all about liberty and freedom. Peter said in one of his epistles about false teachers that want to pump freedom up as the highest thing, he said, they promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. 2 Peter 2.19, I'm free. No, you're not. You're enslaved to your sin. And we stand in opposition to them. And we proclaim the gospel. And we, too, are accused of the same stuff. We're subverting things. We're trying to turn the world upside down. We're full of hate. We're full of evil, whatever. Look, we're not hating anybody, are we? But we are trying to turn things upside down. Really, we're trying to right things. Because it is upside down. And this is what we've been called to do. 
And you know what's even better? Here's the good news. In Jesus Christ, we have the power to turn things upside down. Because it's not us. Well, look how organized we are. We're, we're ready to go. The early church, here's a little rabbit trail. They were not organized. They didn't have any of this stuff. They didn't have blue letter Bible. They didn't have seminaries. They didn't have books or seminars. They didn't have big church buildings. It was illegal for them to meet in buildings of their own. They didn't even have a whole New Testament yet. But you know what they had? They had the power of the Holy Spirit at work in their lives. And they show up with no real strategy. We'll just go to the synagogue and talk about Jesus. You know, Paul, you've tried that in a lot of cities. And everywhere you try that, they show up and they try to kill you. Yeah, but people get saved. There's got to be a better way. Well, I don't know any better way, so let's just go for it. And the Lord honored that, and they turned the world upside down. So don't look at yourself and say, I'm just, I'm not prepared enough. You know more about the Bible than Paul did right now. Because there was no book of Revelation yet. There was no book of Romans yet. The Gospels probably hadn't been written yet. They knew the stories and they knew the truths, but they hadn't been written. And we've had 2,000 years to meditate on these things. We've had 2,000 years to figure out best practices and to write good books and to come up with institutions. But those things can be a hindrance if you start relying on them. We're going to change the world because look at this program we just came up with. There are folks that believe that. And if you're going to use a tool for a good purpose, knock yourself out. But the second you think the tool is what's going to make the difference. You ever go fishing with somebody that spent a whole lot of money on fishing gear? And they're convinced, I'm going to catch so many fish today. Oh, you only spent 50 cents on that? I spent $500 on this lure right here. These fish are going to be lining up to bite this hook. <laughs> and then you get out there, and you're the one catching fish, and they get grumpy. Stupid fish. <laughs> These fish have no taste. They don't know that mine's better, and then they fling it out in the water, and then they reel it in, and they've lost it, and now they're out $500. Fishing's stupid anyway. I'm going inside. <laughs> we can get like that in the church. We've got all this stuff. Look at this. Look at all my degrees. Look at all these books. Look at all these ideas. Look at all the consultants we've called in. Is the power of the Holy Spirit at work in you and in the church? Because that's the only thing that's going to make a difference. Whatever you build a church on is only going to be as strong as that. If you build your church on education, you better keep smart people in there. Because the minute that falls away, they're going to leave. If you build a church on powerful emotional messages, you better stay emotional. Because the minute that fades out, people will go find something else that's more emotional. If you build it on anger against some people, anger against them, anger against this group, that political party, that denomination, this person over here, you better keep them mad. Because whatever you strive to attain, you must strive to maintain. But if you let the Lord build the house, hey, let the Lord's going to maintain it. That's why whenever we're here in the beginning, before we pray for the services, we're like, Lord, this is your deal. This is your thing. I didn't just up one day and say, I think I'd like to move to Alabama and start a church. The Lord said, Tyler, I want you to move to Alabama and start a church. So when I get down here and it gets difficult, I don't go, oh, man, I hope I'm doing it right. I said, God, you brought me here, so show me what you want me to do, because this is your idea. Remember, Paul had been sent to Macedonia by the Lord. There was a vision that called him there. Lord, what do you want us to do? Why do I make this point? I didn't even write any of that down. I'll tell you why. Because we want to turn the world upside down. We've got issues like that that we've got to combat. We've got problems that we want to overcome. 
It can only be done through simple faith and reliance on Jesus Christ. Don't, don't let all the other stuff get in the way. Before I move on from that, I want to tell one, one more quick story, and I hope this encourages you. When we were in Nepal, there's a fellow over there, I forget his name, and he came to one of our conferences, a pastor, and he was 18 years old. And he's talking to my dad, and he says, hey, I really appreciate you coming out, because we were doing training, trying to train these pastors. And my dad says, well, tell me your story. He goes, well, I was the first one to be saved in my village, so I knew this much more than everybody else, so I became the pastor. And dad goes, well, how long have you been doing that? He says, five years. Dad goes, what, five? One, two, three, four, five years? You were 13 when you became the pastor of your church? He goes, yes. Nobody else knew anything about it. And you know what? That kid was leading people to Jesus. That kid was seeing miracles in his, in his city. He was going out of his way to learn as much as he could. But you know what? Before he knew any of that, he knew Jesus, and he knew that Jesus answered prayers, and the Lord was using that. Every single one of you knows more about the Bible than that kid does. Every single one of you knows better ministry strategy than that kid does. Every single one of you knows more about church history than that kid does. So, so don't come to the Lord and say, God, I'm just not ready. I just don't know enough. I'm too ignorant. I'm too quiet. I'm too fearful. This kid is 13 years old. I know two more messages than everybody else, so that puts me in the lead, I guess. I'm the pastor now. And that was enough for Jesus. Because it's not about you, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. Well, they take a security deposit from Jason. This could be one of two things. Either they were saying, you're going to give us $1,000, and you can get your $1,000 back when you make these people leave. Or this was, you give us $1,000, and if they break anything, then it's coming out of your pocket, and this is what's going to be paid for. Either way, they're going to get Paul and Silas out of there. So let's read now verses 10 through 12. We took a little detour, so I'm going to try and go a little faster now. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing, as well as men. Paul, Silas, and Timothy, compelled to leave Thessalonica, and they head west to the city of Berea. I actually found this out. In Greek, the name of that city is Beroia, B-E-R-O-I-A. It means well-watered. I'm not sure why we chose to put it Berea, but we did, so that's what we're going to say today. But it's just interesting to know, the city of Beroia. Now, this is interesting because they would have had to leave the Ignatian Road to get to Berea. They're going off of the beaten path in order to come to this city. It was in the foothills of the Olympian Mountains. Not a lot of claim to fame. It was an out-of-the-way city, about 45 miles away. Paul probably stopped here to sort of escape, let things calm down, and hopefully sneak back to Thessalonica if things calm down quickly. The only other place we'll see Berea mentioned in the New Testament is in Acts 20, verse 4. There's a man named Sopater, son of Pyrrhus, and he's going to join Paul as a co-worker on one of his missionary journeys, and he was from Berea. So if you ever read about Sopater in the Bible, he was from Berea. But for all of that, even though we don't know much about this place, it has a remarkable reputation in Scripture. Paul goes to the synagogue, preaches the same message, but they respond very differently. It says they were more noble 
than those in Thessalonica. That word for noble is eugenes. Eu is positive, and genes is like generation. It means well-born, just like in English. The word noble traditionally referred to people who were born in the upper layer of society, but it came to mean more than that as somebody who behaves as you ought to if you were at the top. So this is what he's saying. The Lord's not interested in the circumstances of your birth, but he is very interested in your behavior. He expects you to honor his word. And that's what the Bereans did. He presented the same proofs from the scriptures, and then they turned back to the scriptures to examine and test what he said. How dare they test an apostle of God? The Bible doesn't condemn them for this. It commends them for this. Because here shows up a guy with strange new doctrines, and they didn't take them at face value. They double-checked their Old Testaments with an open mind, but a commitment to the integrity of the Scriptures. This is what we're told to do. We're told to test everything. 1 John 4.1 says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. The Bereans tested the spirits of Paul and Silas and found them to be telling the truth. So it says, many Jews believed. This may be the best reception Paul ever had from a Jewish audience. Many Gentiles were saved as well. By the way, I hope you're noticing how often rich Gentile women are responding to Paul's message. I don't really have anything to say about that, but it's happened several times. So just interesting to note. We've already said the message of Christ is a disruptive one. It turns lives upside down. It turns societies upside down. And people see that. People see that the church has the power to completely alter society. For that reason, there are many people who have attached themselves to the church so that they can use the church to bring about the kinds of change they want to see. Not because they believe in Jesus. They see the organization of the church as a vehicle for their political or social ideas. Or sometimes they don't really have anything as grand as that. They just want to get rich or famous. There are some people who are very skilled at blending in. They have no compunction about lying their way into a position of trust and authority. And then once they get there, they start to propagate their own ideas. Seminary professors are very guilty of this. Then on the other hand, you have people who... They don't want society to be changed. They're more loyal to their city or their traditions than they are to Christ. And when the culture changes, they change right along with it. And if these folks are part of the church, they get angry or distressed when other Christians don't change with them. Most of the time, these folks will just leave the church, but there are others who will try to stay and persuade people away from the truth. We're not interested in Scripture. We're interested in the American way or the Roman way, or the Japanese way, or whatever way you're interested in. Paul warned Timothy, hear this now, 2 Timothy 4, verses 3 through 4. The time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. And if that is not a description of the world in which we live today. They don't want to hear the truth. They want to hear what they want to hear. So they go out and they find teachers to make them feel good. Have fun one day with your family. Come up with the weirdest doctrine you could possibly invent and then Google it. And you can find some pastor somewhere that is teaching it. Well, what's the solution to that? You know what Paul said in the verse before that? Telling Timothy how to combat that? Preach the word. We are not interested in any person's ideas, whether they're radical, 
or traditional or liberal or conservative in that sense. If we're going to play games on the field of opinion, we're going to lose every time because Satan is a master at manipulating public opinion. This is the ultimate authority in your life. The Bible, the Word of God. God has spoken through his word. You have before you an objective standard of what is right. We're not comparing feelings. You've got words in front of you. We have to learn from these Bereans. It says they search the scriptures daily. Y'all, God is never offended when you go to his word to search out the truth. Somebody teaches you something, even me, especially me, go home, open your Bible, and find it out. Don't go home and Google your favorite teacher and see what he has to say. Open the Bible for yourself. As I read a minute ago, even the Apostle John urged the church to test what they heard. False teachers never want you to test what they tell you. They always have extra books for you to read. Have you noticed that? They, they'll start out, they believe the Bible, they love the Bible. Oh, the Bible's great, I know the Bible. But then they will demand that you interpret the Bible according to some other book. They'll say, yeah, we believe the Bible. And then they open the Bible and they'll give you some weird, obscure verse. And you kind of say, yeah, but what about this over here, this over here? And they say, oh, look, you're really wrong. What you need is the Bible 2.0 right here. This is how you interpret it. The Bible and the Book of Mormon. The Bible and the Watchtower magazine. The Bible and the Quran. It's always the Bible and. And when there's a conflict between the Bible and and, guess which one loses out? It's never and. It's always the Bible. The Bible, it can be broader than that. The Bible and science. The Bible and academic journals. The Bible and the Declaration of Independence. I don't know, whatever. Anytime you place the word and after the Bible in a discussion of authority, you're in trouble. Even the traditions to which we hold. I love traditions. They're great. But if you cannot rediscover them from the scriptures, you might want to watch that. It makes you then wonder, well, if it didn't come from the Bible, where did it come from? Sometimes the attack comes at you a different way. Folks will say things like, listen, the Bible is not your highest authority. God is your highest authority. It's not, you ever hear this one? It's not the Father, the Son, and the Holy Bible. It's the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That all sounds really spiritual, and it makes people go, mmm, when they hear it, because it's nice and poetic. <laughs> it's a subtle attack, but it is a stupid one. <laughs> of course God is our highest authority, but whose word is this? It's God's word. If you claim to believe in God's authority, but you ignore what he says, then you're a liar. If a criminal is hauled in front of the court and says, the law says that murder is wrong. Well, the law is not my highest authority. The president is my highest authority. The government of the United States. Well, they wrote the laws, genius. You can't pit them against each other. I only serve the king. I don't serve the law. The king wrote the law. Yeah, well, prove it. Anytime somebody tries to do that, if they want to try and separate Jesus and the Bible or God and the Bible, they're trying to get away with something because they've got something they want to do and the Bible tells them they can't do it, so they very conveniently forget to read it. They'll go on about visions and dreams or impressions from the Holy Spirit. Listen, I believe in all of those things, but the Holy Spirit is the one who inspired the Bible. He's not going to contradict himself. Well, God just told me that he said it's all right for me to move in with my girlfriend. The Bible says that fornication is wrong. Yeah, but God told me. You get, these are like special dispensations from God that you alone are getting. The worst one, and I, I might step on some toes, but I don't care. The worst one is being at peace with something. I just have a peace about that. 
God is never going to give you peace about something that is contrary to his word. And if you feel at peace with something that is against the Bible, it is a false peace from the devil. We're not Disney princesses. Follow your heart, sweetheart. That's not what we're up to. We're Bereans. We are Christians. We listen to the word of God. And if we're talking about something, like if we've got two options that both fall under the umbrella of Scripture, fine, we can talk about those other things. But if we're talking about the Bible or something outside the Bible, don't come at me with, the Lord said to me, because he didn't. You've got to know what the Bible says. You've got to read it. It's astonishing to me how many pastors have not read their whole Bible. There's no substitute for that. Studying it is great, but you can miss the big picture if you study too closely. There are folks that they are experts on the book of Romans, but ask them anything about the book of Ezekiel. And all of a sudden you realize, I think you maybe have spent a little too much time in one place. Read all of it, especially the parts you don't understand. Second thing, you need to know what the Bible means. The scriptures are not open for anybody's interpretation. They have an intended meaning, and you must search it out. This isn't hard. They're words. They mean things. Take the text literally according to its natural sense, and try your best to harmonize it with the rest of the Bible. That's all Bible study is. And luckily for you and me, there are so many great tools and great helps available to help you with that. By the way, there are so many good tools to help with Bible study. Don't waste your time with a bad one. There's so many great Bible teachers. Don't chase after anybody weird. Because it, it, that happens. It's like, well, every time I read the same good old-fashioned guys, they just kind of say the same things. I want something a little spicy. So let's see what YouTube has to offer. <laughs> learn what the Bible says. Learn what it means. And number three, you've got to know how the Bible applies. That is, you've got to let it change your life. It's not enough to know it. It's not enough to understand it. You must be a doer of the word, not a hearer only. James calls that self-deception in, in James 1.22. Some people spend their whole lives learning the right way to interpret the Bible. They can tell you how everyone else is wrong, but their soul is shriveled up like a raisin. The scriptures are meant to lead you to a closer walk with Jesus. So do what it says. That's what the Bible calls nobility. Learn the word and then do it. The Bereans tested the scriptures, believed them, and lived them out. They weren't interested in traditions or status. They wanted to know God. And Jesus said, if you seek, you will what? Find. So let's finish this passage now, reading down to verse 15. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. Paul's got to be thinking, not again. You'll remember this had happened before. The Jews from Iconium and Antioch followed him to Lystra and stirred up the crowds. And here we go. Thessalonians are chasing him to Berea. They were stirring up the crowds. These people had no shame. They're causing trouble. The gospel's going to cause trouble. So let's cause lots of trouble to stop the Bible from causing trouble. It'd start a riot and say, see, the gospel causes riots. This was not organic outrage. It was manufactured to get a political victory. Satan doesn't play fair. Satan does not abide by the Geneva Convention. He's not interested in the gentlemanly laws of warfare. He just wants to win. 
Now, it would have been easy for Paul and Silas to get petulant here. It wasn't kind, and it wasn't fair what these people were doing to them. They had the message of the salvation, and these Jews, they wanted to keep the fame of being the church for all the wealthy Greek women rather than believe the Messiah. The Greeks wanted to keep their stupid pantheon. Let them have it. We're leaving. Missionaries have quit the field for less. Christians have complained on Facebook for far, far less than that. But they didn't. Paul had been stoned to death. He had been beaten. He'd been imprisoned. He'd been chased across Macedonia, and yet he never uttered a word of complaint. You know why? Because he'd signed up for that. So had Silas and Timothy. He would have told Silas, the last time I went on one of these trips, Silas, they stoned me and left me for dead. You want to come? Timothy had been in Lystra. He'd seen it happen. But they knew what they were signing up for. Paul said, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Friends, if you expect things to stay safe and calm in this business, you are gravely mistaken. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And if you're a Christian, you've signed up to be hated. I hope you're ready for that. <laughs> Peter would say, don't think something strange has happened to you. This is just what happens. And it seems that Paul was one of the ones that they hated most because he's the one that the church sent away. So he goes away, bringing it to a close here. He jumps on a boat all the way down the Grecian Peninsula to Athens. This is about 200 miles south of Berea. And when he gets there, it says he calls for Silas and Timothy at once. And now he's alone. He's waiting. He's actually out of Macedonia now. He's in a new province called Achaia. And he's going to be there for quite some time. But he's not failed. The churches he'd planted in Macedonia would continue to go on bearing fruit. We have letters to the Thessalonians and the Philippians. Nothing else about Berea, but they had such a good start, I'm sure things ended well. He would bring that man from Sopater, from Berea. He would bring two Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secondus, will go with him on his next missionary journey. The Lord knew what he was doing. Lord, you called me to Macedonia, and I just got chased across. Yeah, but you planted the churches, and that's what I wanted. And out of that, we have three books in our Bible that continue to edify us today. We'll look a little bit next week. I was going to talk about what happened after this as far as maintaining the Thessalonian church. Feel free to read First and Second Thessalonians to get a picture of what happened at this point. This is about when those letters would have been written, which makes them probably after Galatians, the earliest epistles that Paul wrote. So what do we take from these stories today? We're not interested in maintaining things the way they are. We're ready to turn them upside down. That's why we hold fast to the Word of God, because the Word of God is a table flipper. It flips things over. It's not easy. And you know what? You might think to yourself, but our society is so far gone. Our culture is so terrible. Our whatever. Stop thinking so big. Shrink your world a little bit. Shrink your world. You might not be able to flip the whole country upside down, but how about your next door neighbor? Somebody who's in bondage to the enemy, bondage to fear, bondage to sin, bondage to anger. The gospel can come in and turn that world upside down. And the Lord wants to use you to do it. Hold fast to the scriptures and the Lord will use your life in a way you never expected.